Hello, over here. Behind the drapes, with my feet sticking out at the bottom, it's me, Meg Wallitzer. Coming up on Selected Shorts, author Elizabeth Stroud and others tantalize us with stories about things kept out of sight. Now you can't go away. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. That happy photo of you, ice skating with your ex, the Peloton gathering dust in the corner of your bedroom, the remaining half of that 60% cocoa bar of dark chocolate, whatever it is that's bugging you, Sometimes the best and easiest way to deal with it is to put it out of sight. Go on, stow it. I'll wait, and I won't even hum the Jeopardy theme. That's it. Stuff that bothersome thing in a drawer, a closet, or some little alcove within yourself that you don't often visit. That's it. Feels better, doesn't it? You won't think about that anymore. Not your ex's new partner, who is never, ever photographed doing awkward physical activity of any kind. Not the $1,500 exercise bike you rode five times, and even then only during one of Cody's easiest rides. And definitely not that chocolate, which, you know, you could just eat one more square of because the bar is not that big. And anyway, dark chocolate is an antioxidant. Plus, you did think about riding the Peloton this morning. So, our stories today on Selected Shorts are about people who put things out of sight and try to put them out of mind. A pair of friends quietly sidestep feelings that might complicate their relationship. A teacher tries to help a parent see who her child really is. And Elizabeth Strout brings us a beautiful and devastating story of a woman grappling with whether to put her mother into a nursing home. Stick around and we'll talk with Strout about her story and her life as a writer. She is the author of The Leavers, which is one of the few novels that has its own mixtape, It's got David Bowie, Frank Ocean, TV on the radio. So in addition to being a writer and triple Scorpio, Coe has great musical taste. Coe's story about the public personas of two private people is read by Vanessa Kai. She showed off her musical chops in the off-Broadway production of K-pop and is a regular cast member on the reboot of Kung Fu. Before we hear it, it's also worth mentioning that this story, as well as the other two you'll hear this hour, was commissioned by Selected Shorts for a new book titled Small Odysseys. Each story was read during a marathon day of performance at our home theater, Symphony Space. And in fact, there is a specific theatrical setting to this story, too. It's a setting that is both about performance and also about a kind of weird intimacy. I think you'll know what I mean when you hear the very first line. And now, here's Vanessa Kai reading Lisa Coe's Nightlife. Nightlife. We'd been singing karaoke for five and a half hours when Andy left the room. At first, no one noticed. Our voices were hoarse, our throats sore, but we were committed to getting the most out of our flat fee. The room rental was all you can sing, and among the five of us were three former honor society overachievers. I wasn't one of them, and Andy wasn't either. He didn't live in one of the gentrifying neighborhoods that we lived in, and he didn't work for a nonprofit or a tech company. He worked a job at a warehouse, or maybe it was a grocery store. A few years ago, Yenling and Eunice had made it their mission to find Andy a date by the end of the summer, said he'd be happy in a relationship, settle down. They failed. But by Labor Day had drunk so much going out every night that Yenling did a juice cleanse, which she brought up as Eunice poured another round of beers. Eunice picked up her cup and said, remember that summer I asked Andy if he was into guys or girls or both? And he said he just hadn't met the right person yet. So was that a yes or a no? Yenling wondered. Eunice said it was a soft yes. Or was it a soft no? Marlin seemed embarrassed, like we were violating Andy's privacy by talking about him. But what are best friends for? Eunice said. Gossip is love. 
Marlon finished singing King of the Road. Out of all of us, he had the best voice. Yenling punched in a song that none of us knew because it had come out in the past five years. She worked in an office of 25-year-olds and still went out every night. I've got to go soon, Marlon said. I've got to help with bedtime. And we said, no, no. But Marlon was already lost to the abyss of parenting, a future we masked our discomfort for by thinking, well, at least we can stay out late. Yenling and Eunice asked to see pictures of the baby again. Oh, I want one, Eunice said in a little voice. And then she looked at me and Yenling as if to say, don't you too? Marlon said he'd wait for Andy to come back before leaving. Where do you go anyway? Maybe the bathroom, Eunice said. Yenling and Marlon had gone to high school with Andy. Eunice had been Yenling's college roommate. They were, they said, his best friends. I only knew them through him. Three years ago, I'd met Andy in a restaurant where the single people were forced to eat at round tables with couples and other single people. We were seated, one empty chair between us, across from a man and a woman on an awkward first date. Do you think they'll have a second date? He said to me. We talked out the sides of our mouths as we dipped our shumai into bowls of chili crisp. Not with that goofy shirt on, I said. If I were him, I'd wear it with the buttons up, Andy said. And I said, yes, me too. <laughs> After that, we became friends. No interest in dating each other because of our age difference. Or maybe he wasn't into me or not into anyone at all. Since I was an editor who worked from home, some people assumed I was always free to hang out which for the most part was true. <laughs> when I dumped my ex, I called Andy, and we watched a horror movie matinee. And when his dad was sick, he texted me to meet up for a drink. And we talked about everything but that. One time, Yenling said something about Andy's parents, and I realized that none of them knew that his dad was sick. None of them knew about my ex either. As we passed the mic around for the Depeche Mode medley, I told Andy's best friends how Andy and I were driving around in his car one night after a movie, and we found a turtle on the side of the road under the chemical Meadowlands sky. We were in New Jersey because Andy lived in a studio in Harrison. Marlon said you lived in Queens, I had said. And Andy said, uh, no. That was a long time ago. We put the turtle in the car, and it was very still. I, I, I think it's dead, I said. But Andy said it was only sleeping. His family had a tortoise when he was growing up. It was 45 years old. Yeah, that's old, I said, though it wasn't much older than me. Actually, it's not that old for a tortoise, Andy said. Where is it now, I asked. He said, Jiro gave it away. I didn't know who Jiro was. And then what? Eunice said. Her eyes were giant behind her glasses, and she and Yenling were waiting. They wanted the ending. And Marlon, too, leaning forward on the purple vinyl bench as the backing track played to Radiohead's Creep. Face flushed from the beer in his hand. I've got to go soon, he said again. We sang the chorus together. And then we let the turtle out in a swamp near an underpass and said, go, little buddy, go. I said, and, and that's it, that, that's the whole story. <laughs> the whole story was that after we let the turtle go, Andy and I ate burgers and fries at a diner in Jersey City in the maze of highways outside the Holland Tunnel. It was a period of my life when I was mostly broke and sad, and most nights I wandered around my apartment by myself eating string cheese and scrolling through news on my phone. I asked Andy about his job at the warehouse or grocery store. 
our elbows on the sticky diner counter, and he said, Look, I'm actually an actor. <laughs> His round glasses, oily skin, and small, even teeth made him appear younger than he was, though I could see the grays in his hair. I'm auditioning for these plays, but don't tell anyone. I have performance anxiety when people I know are in the audience, because then I feel like there's something at stake. I promised him I wouldn't tell anyone, that I wouldn't go see his plays. I was drinking a lot, I told him. I still am. We ate our burgers, we ate our fries. Our knees brushed up against one another underneath the counter and stayed there. That's when you know that someone is the person for you. Not the algorithm or the shared alma mater, but the lack of expectations, the understanding. Andy came back into the karaoke room as the next song began to play. He carried a plastic bag opened it to reveal a box of chicken wings. <laughs> Eunice and Yenling clapped their hands and Marlon said, yeah, I guess I'll stay for another song. <laughs> we passed out napkins, containers of sauces. Andy took the mic and said, oh, this one is mine. There was a waterfall on the video. The dancers formed a line. A man sang to another man walking a dog. Children ran along a beach, and a woman flipped her long hair in a meadow. I felt my feet kicking as I licked the side of a wing. And though I might not have felt a ringing joy, I suppose you could say I felt a satisfaction. That was Lisa Coe's story, Nightlife, performed by Vanessa Kai. Now, I think there's an argument to be made that our protagonist is truly happy in her liminal state. But she exhibits so much quiet longing and self-denial. And the two characters are sharing secrets that could easily be construed as loving trust. Who among us hasn't tried to keep love out of sight in hopes of staying safe and unhurt? You know the expression, what happens at karaoke stays at karaoke? In this story, it's almost like the protagonist's inner life is its own little karaoke room where she can openly sing her heart out all night or else simply hang back and listen. Next, let's hear from Patrick Cottrell. He is the author of the novel Sorry to Disrupt the Peace, and though we hadn't performed any of his stories at Selected Shorts, we liked his writing well enough to commission this piece for our collection, Small Odysseys. It takes place at a school, but ironically, the adults seem to be those in need of an education. As parents try to hide aspects of their kids' identities, Cottrell finds a real, physical parallel for their attempts to keep things tucked away. Reading the story will be an actor who has appeared in series including High Maintenance and Rami, as well as the film Bros. Now here's Becca Blackwell performing Patrick Cottrell's The Hole. The hole. A dog died one day, and the school said it was my fault. For less than a year, I taught children at a charter school in East LA. The parking lot was enclosed with a fence and some shrubs. Each morning, the sky was a cold, snowy blue. I would sit in my Prius and listen to my meditation app before the bell rang. The sky was the same color blue when I left in the late afternoon. The teaching faculty did not have professional certificates or backgrounds in education. The main qualifications for their positions was to not be afraid of children. I heard most applicants lied and said they weren't afraid of children, but they admitted that they were very afraid of the children's parents. I wrote passionately in my application, I want nothing more than to be liked and accepted but I am fearful of all human beings. The week before spring break, there were parent-teacher conferences. I was going to spend my break at a sangha in silence and devotion. I had shaved my head. 
A few of the students called me a lesbian. Some kid threw a water bottle at me, the cheap crinkled plastic kind. When I was angry, I counted my inhalations. In my books on Buddhism, I read that when you look at a child's hand, you look at their mother's hands and their father's hands as they are a continuation of their parents and the trees and the clouds and the wind and the birds. And I wondered if my students saw my parents' faces when they looked at me. Impossible to know. It didn't matter. I was adopted. The doors of the school opened to the parents at eight in the evening. I sat at a card table. I wore a name tag, and underneath my name were the subjects I taught. The dance mentor walked over to me. Excellent work teaching those idiots, Kant. <laughs> you mean Derrida, I began, and then my voice just trailed off. An older woman sat down at my table. She had a small brown dog with white-tipped ears sticking up out of her purse. Have you noticed anything weird about Nadine? How do you mean? I said, stalling. I wasn't sure who the woman was talking about. I'm worried, she said. My daughter Nadine wants me to call her Paxson and use he and they pronouns. You seem like you might know about these things. Is this a phase that will go away if I ignore it? Hmm. I didn't understand what the problem was. I tried to picture Paxson. I, I could see a black sweatshirt with the hood pulled up, sulking in class. Probably sleeps a lot. Nadine's mother, Mrs. Gull, said she herself wasn't a feminine woman, really. She liked to do yard work, to lift objects like bricks. She said she did not understand why her daughter couldn't be happy living as a masculine woman. I had heard on a podcast that when you listen to someone, you must practice deep listening as if you were a well of pure compassion because the person who speaks suffers. I mean, look at you, said Mrs. Gall. You don't go around demanding that people call you John Jack, he, him, theirs. You're not jumping up on the table exclaiming that you're pansexual. Hmm. I had only ever dealt with one set of parents in the past while on crossing guard duty. The husband and wife couple form complained about how there weren't any sports teams or dances as they waited across the street with their child. But we do have a Latinist and we read books about thonic deities, I recited. There was a manual on how to handle such complaints. Oh, okay, the husband said sarcastically. He gave me a thumbs up. Identity is a complicated subject for all, I quoted to Mrs. Gall from the manual. Then I decided to veer away from the manual. I wanted to tell her a good story with a beginning, middle, end. Not long ago, a hole had opened up in the ground outside of the school near the parking lot. It was deeper than a ditch. If one of the children were to fall into the hole, they would certainly die. So the school decided to cover up the hole with a sheet of black plastic, and then the school put a sign by the hole that said, hole. <laughs> now no one even thinks about it anymore, I reported. And thankfully, no one has died. <laughs> Mrs. Gull didn't care for my story. Sometimes I piss people off and I don't know why. She stood up and looked for someone else to talk to. A few weeks later, Mrs. Gull filed a complaint against me. I found out that Alex had died that night in the parking lot. Alex was Mrs. Gull's little dog. She made it sound like the hole was safe, wrote Mrs. Gull. You should not have been talking with her about the hole in the first place, the director of the school said. She slid a piece of paper across her desk for me to sign. According to the manual, the day you are fired, your job is to wrap things up efficiently. I passed my students in the hall doing group work. I explained that I had been fired and that if they wanted to be my friend on social media, they could search for my name and add me, but I wouldn't initiate any friendships with them because that would be messy and unprofessional. I waited for them to extend their sympathies. 
or at least a simple thank you or goodbye. You never liked children, my mother said. I looked at their faces and saw the indifference of nature, I said. I feel awful about the dog, though. My phone pinged with a notification. Perhaps one of my students had added me as a friend. Or could it be the director from the school offering me an apology? I glanced down. It was my meditation app. Millie, where have you been? Are you coming back soon? That was The Hole by Patrick Cottrell, performed by Becca Blackwell. Here's the thing about being a parent and trying to keep your kid's identity tucked away or obscured. It's going to come out anyway. I think we all know something about growing up and coming into ourselves, haters be damned. But it works both ways. When I was young, my sister and I had alter egos that took the form of horses. Hers was called Silver Cane, and mine, oddly, was called Sack. I'm sure I could psychoanalyze these names for the rest of my life, but I think what mattered to us was that these horses, these identities, were ours alone. If anyone had insisted we reveal them, I think we would have said nay. I'm Meg Wallitzer. When we come back, Elizabeth Strout, Homecomings and Burning Christmas Trees. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. This hour is dedicated to things that get tucked away out of sight. If you missed one of the stories in our first half, they're not hidden, I guarantee it. Head to selectedshorts.org or your favorite podcasting platform, where we've got this show and several others waiting for you to stream. While you're there, Please subscribe to Selected Shorts and our spin-off podcast, Too Hot for Radio. Too Hot is hosted by the very funny Aparna Nanchurla and features stories that are spicy and which sometimes tip over into racy and are all definitely worth a listen. For the last piece in our program, we'll hear from contemporary master Elizabeth Strout. She's the award-winning author of many novels and short story collections, including My Name is Lucy Barton and Olive Kitteridge. Both have been adapted for performance, Barton as a play and Kitteridge as an HBO series. It's not surprising that the title characters were played, respectively, by the great actors Laura Linney and Frances McDormand. For Elizabeth Strout, character is often front and center, which doesn't necessarily mean a character is always going to reveal herself and her most private thoughts to those around her. Sometimes she might do everything she can to keep the truth from coming out. But still, it often does come out, even in this story near the end of a very long life, when everything seems to be winding down. The story features a recurring Strout character, the actor Annie Appleby. She's come to her family home to determine whether to put her mother into an elder care facility. Performing the story is longtime stage actor and shorts regular Maya Dillon. In addition to being a stalwart for our show, she pops up in many series and films, including the recent April Flowers and Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Here she is, reading Elizabeth Strout's Home. Home. From where she sat, Annie Appleby could see through the window behind her mother's head into the house next door, the house she had grown up in and she could see the old Christmas tree, brown in its needles from over a year ago, with the ornaments still hanging from it, the table with the old newspapers and magazines spread across, the cabinets of the kitchen she could see too, the door of one of them hanging down, a hinge had come off. 
She looked over now at her mother's face, which at times was comprehending and at times was not. The interplay of these two conditions disconcerted Annie the most. Her mother was looking pleasantly at her, and so Annie said, Mom, I think we really need to take that tree down in the house. It could be a fire hazard. And like that, her mother was gone, the blankness arriving so quickly that Annie wondered if it had been willed. Don't mention the house, Annie's sister Cindy had told her last week on the telephone. She doesn't always seem to know that Jamie died, so don't tell her. And so now Annie took a deep breath and went back to the story she was telling her mother. Sylvia Appleby was a small woman with pretty white hair, and she sat on the couch where her own mother had lived out her last days in this small house next door to the farmhouse. Sylvia watched her daughter, whose long legs were crossed as she sat in the big chair that had a reddish print upholstery, but now on the arms was worn to just strings. How that child talked. Amazing and tiresome. Little Annie with her dark hair. In the summer when the leaves were full, Sylvia would watch the tiny girl from the kitchen window carrying her yellow plastic bucket back and forth, her mouth always moving, then squatting by a tree, digging in the pine needles. Toads, Annie told her when she came in for lunch, her dark eyes shining as she looked up at her mother. I made a little place for them all near one tree so they could be together. She had seemed to be a happy child. Odd. Always talking, though. She would go to bed talking and get up talking. And she was still talking. Now Annie was a middle-aged woman, thin but tall. Her hair was still dark and long and curly. She was telling her mother about some production she had been in years ago in London, about some man who had stepped off the stage. Sylvia could not follow it. But Sylvia watched the child, the woman, who stopped in the middle of the story and laughed. Mom, Annie said, Mom, it was so funny. Annie was here to put her mother in a home. She had come up from where she lived outside of New York City to this small potato farm in Aroostook County in Maine, where she had been raised. Annie had made the trip to put her mother in the Catholic nursing home outside of town. The two of them would be going there tomorrow morning. Cindy, who lived in New Hampshire, had made the arrangements a number of months ago. But you're going to have to take her, Cindy had said on the telephone two weeks ago to Annie. I, I, I just can't do it. And Annie said she understood. Cindy's husband, after 43 years of marriage, had recently left Cindy for another woman. So... This is what they told me at the pre-admissions conference, Cindy had said over the phone that day, sounding tired. Tell Mom she's just staying there for a little while while, well, because Sandy had to go on vacation. And you'll have to keep telling her because she will keep forgetting. Annie stood now to turn up the thermostat. It was March and chilly, and Annie always felt the cold. She turned back to her mother and said, so, remember our adventure tomorrow? We're going to a place where you'll stay until Sandy can come back to take care of you. Sandy needed a vacation, and they'll take care of you at this place until she gets back. It was not Annie's nature to lie. It was not easy for her. She had been a professional actor since she was 16 years old, never finishing high school, until nine years ago, at the age of 41, she had left the theater and married a man in finance. And her husband often jokingly said to her, You're such a good actress, Annie, implying that she was dissembling about something. Annie had tried telling him that, in fact, being a good actor meant being truthful. But she no longer said this. He did not seem to grasp it. You have your old friends there, Annie added now, and her mother only watched her. Alma Ayote, remember? She'll be there. Annie turned to squint at the thermostat again. 
What's on your fingernails? Sylvia suddenly asked. She had noticed the child's fingernails as soon as Annie had shown up. They were painted white, and Sylvia had not understood this. Oh, Annie stood looking at her nails, splayed both her hands in front of her. I went for a manicure with a friend of mine. What? Sylvia asked. A manicure, you know, when they do your nails. Sylvia did not say anything. I sort of got the wrong color. This color is called ballet slippers, and I thought it would be pinker, but it looks a little... Dead, Sylvia said. And Annie laughed. Oh, I know, she said, I know. She put her hands out in front of her once more, looking from one hand to the other. It's gruesome, she said. She added, good for you, Mom. What? Her mother said. Good for what? Good for you, Annie said, walking over and rubbing her mother's arm. The thought went through her head, I will be able to do this. Annie's husband had not been able to make the trip with her. He had a conference he had to attend in Chicago. Then they both had to attend his ex-wife's wedding on Saturday back in New York. Annie would leave tomorrow after dropping her mother at the home. Annie had flown up to Presque Isle two days ago and then rented a car and driven an hour to this place, what had once been her home, which she had almost never come back to, except in the last few years when she would make an annual trip. Now Annie sat back down in the big chair and thought the words, Annie had to fly up and put her mother in a nursing home. She'll be back Friday night. She said these words silently, as her husband might say them to his colleague, because they made it sound natural what she was doing. But in truth, as she sat there, Annie felt as though she had been put into a tiny spaceship alone and shot off into another universe altogether. Since the age of 16, she had traveled the country, city after city, acting in plays. She did not feel she knew her family, because in a way she did not. But her real family had been those in the theater. For years they had taken care of her. In this way, Annie understood this vaguely, she had never fully grown up. It was not until a disastrous love affair made her leave the theater nine years ago and marry her husband that she had thought with excitement, oh, I will have a real home. But right now, her mother's complacent, wrinkled face frightened Annie, and her mother's clothes that seemed to hang off her, the ratty pink sweater she wore with her black pants, the house so cold and small, and the farmhouse next door in such disrepair, it frightened her. Where is Sandy? Sylvia asked this suddenly. She sat with her hands folded in her lap. On vacation, Annie said. And Sylvia said, okay. In the small kitchen, they sat at the table. It had been a white wooden table years ago, but now the paint was chipped and the table itself seemed almost gray. The windows had fine spiderwebs between their faded red curtains and the glass. Annie had opened a can of spaghetti. Her mother liked that. Cindy had told this to Annie. And in fact, her mother ate it readily, dropping strings of the orange spaghetti down her front onto the pink sweater. And when Annie got up and tucked a napkin under her throat, her mother still kept eating. Annie said... Okay, we have your suitcase packed, and we need to be there by nine in the morning. And her mother said nothing, using her fork not very well with the orange-streaked spaghetti. So Annie talked. She talked about her husband's ex-wife, that she was getting married, and Annie and Mark would be going. It was going to be a traditional big wedding. Do you believe that, Mom? And her mother sat quietly now. Her food was gone. She claimed she never liked her first wedding, to Mark, and so she's having a huge, old-fashioned wedding, white gown and everything. Her mother still did not respond. Annie got up and cleared the table. 
She set the dishes on the small countertop and turned back to the table. Her mother looked up at Annie with a face of innocence. It gave Annie's stomach a small lurch. Your father was not a pervert, Sylvia said. Annie stood quietly for a moment. Then she said, No, he wasn't. She said it kindly. You are absolutely right. He was not a pervert, Sylvia repeated. That was all rubbish. Jamie, their older brother, had never married, staying on the farm and taking care of their mother when their father had become demented and gone into a different home, not the Catholic one. Their father had died ten years ago, and then a little more than a year ago, Jamie died. According to Cindy, their mother, that night Jamie had died, had walked into their grandmother's house next door, not used for years, and said she was never going back into the farmhouse. And then she had gone downhill rather quickly. Cindy had to get a helper, Sandy, to come move in. The Christmas tree that Annie saw through the window was the last tree her brother had put up. Cindy said every time she tried to take the ornaments off was the only time her mother got upset. One time, her mother stood at the window that Annie had earlier been looking out of and had broken it with her hands, splittering glass everywhere. Stop that! she had yelled. So Cindy had let the tree alone. We'll set a match to the place as soon as she's gone, Cindy had said. Nobody was buying potato farms these days. Months earlier, Annie had spoken to Cindy on the phone as Cindy drove around to check out the different nursing homes. Annie had been amazed at the anger of her sister. Cindy would say, apparently as she pulled up at a stop sign, you ugly old man, you make me sick. Or, watch out, you stupid young kid, you think you know everything, you stupid sicko. It was not until Cindy said, ostensibly referring to a man she drove past, you fucking faggot, that Annie understood it was not just Cindy's divorce, but her father that she was still angry at after all these years. Annie had said quietly, Cindy, please stop that. My best friends in the world are gay, and I wish you wouldn't say that. After a moment, Cindy said, It's just that he lied to us all those years, Annie. Annie said, he had to, Cindy, because back then, that's what gay men had to do. Think about it. It's awful, Cindy. It was not until their father had gone into a home with dementia that they had found out this about him. He could not stop talking about it. A psychiatrist had been consulted and said it was true. Their father, for years, had had an affair with Seth Potter their fourth-grade teacher, who had been the man who helped Annie get her first acting job. And then he was gone. There won't be any surprises with Mom, Annie said. And Cindy said, oh, I know, a more complacent woman never lived. Annie finished the dishes and then went into the living room where her mother sat watching television. It was a show about cops and her mother sat watching it, her mouth partly open. Last night, while her mother sat watching this same show, Annie had gone into her mother's bedroom and packed a small suitcase. Now she went back and took the suitcase from the closet and looked through it again. She had packed underwear and a few dresses and some slacks and two sweaters. Cindy had said the home told her to make the move gradually. In a few weeks, Cindy would bring over her mother's quilt, her bedside table. Her mother would get used to the place that way. Annie looked around her mother's room and finally took a few photographs that her mother had had for years of her children when they were all younger. She hesitated, but then she put them in the suitcase and clicked it shut. It was an old suitcase, and you closed it by the two brass clasps. 
Annie could not concentrate on the television show, but she sat there quietly. They had not had a television when Annie was small, and as she sat there, she suddenly remembered in the farmhouse one night, her father had said to her, What's the matter with you? She had looked up at him in surprise. You haven't said a word in half an hour. And it was then that Annie realized no one else in their house spoke much at all. That her talking, which she was hardly aware of doing, was like a radio playing in the background that the family depended upon. This is the knowledge that started to sink into her that day. But it was not until this moment that she realized it was true. This is how it was in life, she thought, that children know everything, but they do not know they know it until much later. And then, when they are old enough, most of them tell themselves that what they knew was never true. But it was true. She had been the soundtrack of her family. That night, Annie put her mother to bed. The woman really was as complacent as a good child. She got into her nightgown and unfolded her quilt, which had been made by Annie's grandmother years earlier. And then the old woman lay down and pulled the quilt up to her chin and looked at Annie expectantly. Annie sat down on the bed. It was a narrow bed, but her mother was tiny. And Annie said, now remember, we have a big day tomorrow. We're going to go to a place where they'll help you until Sandy gets back from vacation. Her mother seemed to be studying Annie's face. Okay, she said. And your friend Alma Ayot will be there, Annie said. And her mother said, okay, again. In the dark, Annie lay on the couch in the living room. She had not even bothered to undress. Her anxiety was growing. She pulled the afghan over her shoulders, and her stepdaughter, Megan, came to mind. The girl had been ten years old when she first met Annie, and Annie had hugged her that day. Megan said, stepping back, I didn't think people from Maine hugged, adding with her eyes rolling, it must be all that hanging out with those theater people. It had baffled Annie. Megan was now almost 20, and right before Annie had left to come up here, Megan had said to her, Why do you look the way you do? Why? Annie had felt a physical pain go right through her chest as she looked at Megan. What do you mean? she asked. And Megan's face became suddenly furious, and she said, You just always look so, so, I don't know, like a rube. Annie thought now of her poor mother's pink sweater, stained with the orange spaghetti. She thought how she had wanted a child with Mark, and three times she had become pregnant, and three times she had miscarried. And then she stopped trying. She thought, and this was interesting, she turned on her side, how when she married Mark, she had had some kind of idea that she would be taking on a part in a terrifically exotic play. There were large houses and a country club and shopping trips with her in-laws, a pool house behind her in-laws' home. But she had not, she saw now, ever been able to embrace the role with any real truth. She felt like a foreigner because she was. It was not until very, very early in the morning that she fell asleep. And then she woke with a start. She stood up and said, Mom? And there was no answer. Her mother was not in her room. Annie saw through the window flames coming from the Christmas tree in the farmhouse, and she whispered, No, 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 as she ran out the door and into the farmhouse, and her mother was throwing lit matches on it. They were kitchen matches from a big box. Mom, what are you doing? Annie yelled, and she grabbed her mother's hands and went immediately into the kitchen and filled old pans with water, and she kept throwing the water on the tree. It did not take that long to extinguish it, 
but the floor was hugely wet. And when Annie finally felt the fire was completely out, she turned her attention to her mother, who was sitting on a chair with her face oddly contorted. Annie thought, ha, this is a horror movie. Mom, she said, Mom, what were you doing? The woman didn't answer, but stood up in a resigned way. Her nightgown was torn on one side, Annie saw. Oh, Mom, Annie whispered, and she walked her mother back to the other house. The clock in the kitchen had its hands in a straight line up and down, six o'clock. Let's have you take a shower, Annie said, and her mother obediently went with her. And Annie felt saddened deeply by the woman's old body, the breasts that were almost flattened on her chest, the rump that used to be firm and full, now also flat with many little wrinkles going down it. She dried her mother gently with a towel, and her mother suddenly said, Feels good. And then Annie put a clean dress on her. Her mother reached into the drawer and pulled out a pair of pantyhose, and Annie helped her put those on. She was surprised. It was as though her mother were dressing up for her day. She made her mother a breakfast of scrambled eggs, and her mother ate them. Sitting at the table, Annie could not talk. The time had come to go. But when Annie brought out her mother's suitcase from the closet, her mother said, what's happening? And so Annie said again how her mother was going to stay at a place until Sandy could get back, and her mother's lower lip trembled. No, her mother said softly. It's going to be just fine, Annie said. Sandy needs a break. But Annie thought, I could die from this. And then she thought, oh, don't be so dramatic, which is something Mark often told her. The road her mother lived on was a long road. In Annie's youth, it had been a dirt road, but it had been paved for years now. Still, they drove by fields of matted brown grass, and Annie saw that there were different colors to the brown, almost a quiet beauty to it. Her mother said, Who fainted at their wedding? Somebody did. Annie turned to look at her mother, so small in her brown coat, sitting beside her, staring ahead through the windshield. Mom, you remember me telling you that? Someone fainted, her mother said. The bride. Annie pulled up to the stop sign and slowly turned onto Route 4. Yeah, that was me. On the lawn of her in-law's house, Annie had slipped to the ground that day. Her knees had just given way. Her mother said, doesn't bode well. Annie waited, and then she said, well, no one from her family had attended her wedding. They drove into the parking lot of the old place where her mother would live. The building was old and stone, and it looked gray today with almost no sun in the sky. The parking lot was big, and Annie pulled into a spot. She got out and got her mother's suitcase, and she and her mother walked slowly across the parking lot. The man who ran the nursing home was there to meet them at the front desk. Behind him was a large room, and a number of people sat in wheelchairs, some with their chins on their chests. The place smelled. It got into Annie's nose. As soon as she had stepped through the door, it was decay, the smell, covered with strong disinfectant. The man looked about Annie's age. He said his name was John Jaubert, and then he said, You don't remember me, do you? No, Annie said. We were in school together. I sat behind you in third grade. Oh, wow, okay, Annie said. The man did not smile. There was in him something ungenerous. And then Annie understood, because the next thing he said was, So, you're living in the city of New York these days? And she saw that he felt what others in town must feel, 
that Annie had left them all behind when she was 16 years old. Her mother stood patiently beside her, holding her pocketbook in front of her with both hands on its small handle. Outside of New York, Annie said, and saw in the man's eyes it made no difference. Welcome, Mrs. Appleby, the man said to Annie's mother. And it was then that her mother turned to Annie and said, No, don't do this. She ran. She did actually run. Annie could not believe it, and she pushed open the door and ran through the parking lot. Leave us, Annie said to the man. I'll deal with this. Her mother was half running to the car. Her pocketbook was hitting her leg as she moved as quickly as she could. Annie, running after her, saw her mother get into the back seat, leaving the car door open, and then her mother's head disappeared. Annie got to the car and saw her mother lying on the seat. And Annie gently moved her mother's legs and got in beside her. Water was streaming down the old woman's face, and she said, No, 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 please, Annie, no, please, don't make me go there. Annie lifted her mother up so that the old woman was sitting, and she put her arms around her. Her mother moved over, half sitting on Annie's lap, her fine white hair touching Annie's neck. Her mother was crying now with real sobs that came up through her tiny body. Annie could feel the woman shaking. Annie stroked her mother's hair. Okay, Mom, don't worry. Always, there are things we live with that we do not know. Annie's father had been gay and she had not known until he grew old. Annie had thought she would live her entire life in the theater. She had not known she would marry. Her husband was now cheating on her, and she did not know. Although Megan knew this, she had found her father's texts. And Annie certainly did not know that within one month's time, her mother would not want to leave the place she had just run away from that she would stay in her bed all day long there and talk more and more to herself, that she would become as chatty as Annie had been as a child. But what Annie did know right now, as her mother held on to her tightly, it came to her like a slap of dark blue color, was that she, Annie, was alone in the world. She had been catapulted into adulthood, and she felt completely unprepared. She had a sense of all that she faced, and she was terrified. She kissed her mother's cheek, and the woman stopped her weeping. I'm scared, her mother finally whispered to her. And Annie said quietly, I know stroking the woman's hair. I know. She wondered then where she herself would die. She had no home up here anymore. She hadn't for years and years. And her home now, with her husband, felt odder to her every day. She did not love him as she had thought she would. She who could not seem to find a sense of fashion, who looked like a rube with her fingernails an unintended, deathly white. There is a world that is like a glass bowl that we live inside of, and we can see some things refracted in the light, but other things we cannot see. We only feel the shadows as they press against us or come dancing in briefly. We, all of us, live our lives as though partially blind. It is astonishing that we make it through the world at all. But we do. Most of us do. Even those of us, like Annie, with no home that she could go to.
Maya Dillon performed Home by Elizabeth Strout. Wow, this story made me cry. The scene in which Sylvia eats canned spaghetti is a small tragedy. Both the fact that she gets it on her sweater and doesn't notice, and also, in a way, that she enjoys it so much. We see the puzzle of pleasure and confusion existing side by side in a person. A good story is a closed system, but sometimes it's great to open it up, and I wanted to ask Stroud about this one. Happily, she was able to join me for a chat. So Annie Appleby, she's a character that you're revisiting here. Right. And you've created this whole ecosystem for your characters to live in. Did that start intentionally or did that just grow? It just grew. I had no intention of doing it, but I just realized as I started to, you know, work on one story that, oh, look, it's connected in some way. And it was just fun for me to find these different connections as long as they were organically already there waiting for me to discover them. What did you want to find out about Annie and her mother? In the story Home, it was very interesting for me to think of a woman at that point in her life of having to go into a home. And there's a friend of mine here in Maine who deals with situations like that all the time. And I talked to her about, you know, the process of somebody like that going into a home. And she explained to me that it was done gradually. And I just got very interested in that. And it seemed to me that it would fall on Annie because she's Annie. (laughs) And there's an undercurrent of trauma running through the family and running through the whole story. And yeah. It's so strong in My Name is Lucy Barton, and it comes up here in Home. Right. And even Sylvia, who's lost language and memories, she's still relitigating the past, and she's still, I guess, telling herself a story about it. (laughs) She absolutely is. And the state that Annie's mother is in is sort of in and out, which is why I started the story with that. Her mother's looking very blank and then looking engaged and how it sort of comes on and off in a certain way at that stage. So that was interesting to me to realize that her mother can be present for a few moments and then will not be present. Also, it's about pleasure, too, because that moment with the canned spaghetti where she's eating and it's canned spaghetti of all things. And she's taking great pleasure from it, even as she's eating and getting it on her sweater. Right. Exactly. But she's also takes a pleasure in her shower. Yeah. Because she says to Annie, feels good when Annie is drying her off and that was touching to me that she said that but she also doesn't know which I thought in its bizarre way made me feel so much better when the reader finds out that at the end that her mother will actually be okay there that her mother will start to talk as much as Annie used to talk that's Annie's nature to chat 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 and then it turns out that her mother will do the same thing in the nursing home will be just chatting away happily and I thought oh that's so perfect to at least give the reader that. She's not going to be crying. She's going to be chatting like her daughter did. Oh, it was brilliant. It was a wonderful way to sort of fuse them together in that way. I loved it. I absolutely love that. So the story deals with memory. And when you're talking about a nursing home and older people, we're dealing with memory and memory loss. But also our own memories is such a theme of everything you write about. Yeah. Because, you know, what is memory? Who knows what it is? I'm envious of the idea of having these characters in short pieces and novels that you can come to. Yeah. It's a community of characters in a way, right? Right. That's how I've become to feel about it. And are you like the mayor? (laughs) No. No, no, no. I'm way behind the curtain. (laughs) Well, it's um, a beautiful story, and I loved hearing it. I loved reading it, and I'm so glad that you had more to say. It was a very nice thing for me to hear it as well. It's buoying in a way, isn't it, to hear your own work? It was a pleasure to hear the story. It was so well read. I didn't feel personally connected to it in a way. It was just a freedom that arrived for me to listen to that. That's when it's really, really over maybe for a writer that your active engagement with the story, when you're listening like a reader in some way. When you're listening like a listener. That was a bit of my conversation with Elizabeth Strout. To hear the full interview, you can go to selectedshorts.org or download the bonus podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Strout really encourages us to dwell on the meaning of the word home. It's that place we come from that we may avoid once we mature. A home is a place where someone might suggest we go one day, which may remove us from the place where we belong. And home is a notion, an idealized vision of a place we may never see. Each of these places may seem distant, almost unreal to us. And I think Strout is posing a question here. That is... What price are we willing to pay for keeping these things tucked away, hidden from ourselves and from others? Can things truly be out of mind if they're just out of sight? 
Speaking of which, the other half of that chocolate bar I mentioned earlier is long gone, but not forgotten. It was delicious. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. <laughs>